Open it up to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. Now, before I get started, I need to remind you or kind of draw your attention to the danger of a text like we're going to read today. Um, the Easter narrative is probably one of the best-known narratives in the whole Bible. Um, I would imagine if you've surveyed uh, random people on the street and asked them, tell me something about Christianity, um, I would imagine that, that they would say something about there was this guy named Jesus, and, and he was raised from the dead, and I don't know all the details, but like you know, that, that's kind of the central claim. And so you may be asking then, well, if everybody knows, then what's the danger of a text like this? And the danger is to think that you already know what the story is about and what the story means, when in reality, our familiarity with the passage keeps us from digging deeper into it and, and continuing to learn from it. Because most of us feel like we know this story, right? Um, this, this is something that if you've been in church, you've heard over and over and over again. I was telling Jamie, like, in some ways I love the Easter season, but in some ways it's like that's every Sunday. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. We're celebrating Jesus' resurrection every single Sunday of the year, not just this one special one, right? And, and so it's something that we are very familiar with, and the danger is that we become complacent with it. And, and some of you may be even here going, oh, he's going to preach about the resurrection. I already know that. Let me, let me tune out and think about what I'm going to do this week. And that's the danger. And I, and I want to draw your attention to that danger so that hopefully this morning we can dive deeper into what the resurrection means and, and maybe look at it from a perspective that you haven't looked at it before. And to do that, I want to frame, because the resurrection is such a unique thing. Like we, we don't have categories for the resurrection, right? Categories in the way we think, right? So I want to try to frame it by telling you a, a story that, that maybe will help. And it, it's, a, it's a poor comparison. All my analogies today, by the way, all my illustrations are a poor illustration of the truth of the resurrection. So understand that. I, I'm just hoping to maybe give you some touch points to, to connect some dots in your mind. But I want to start by framing it with this story. Many of you know uh, that I went to Boston recently um, so that I could do one of the best April Fool's Day pranks ever. But before I went, I started reading um, a book called American Rebels. And, and I thought, you know, I'll, I'll just this is a fun book for me, a history book about the city of Boston and, and everything that went on there. And that would just help me. So when I'm there, and it was fascinating, I highly recommend it. Um, it's, it's very interesting to understand how theology played a role in the American Revolution. Um, but, but there was a story in there that, that really just stuck out to me, and it made me think about the resurrection. It made me think about the morning that the women go to the tomb. Everybody's probably familiar with the American Revolution, but you may not have heard this story. I had never heard this story. Um, do any of you know a man in history named Rufus Putnam? Show of hands. Anybody? Anybody? David, no. David, could you come up here and tell us who Rufus Putnam oh. So Putnam was a, a millwright by trade, so something like what we would understand an engineer to be. He's a guy who puts things together, okay? Um, 
And he served under someone you probably do know, George Washington, um, pretty famous guy in American history. And Washington had been trying to retake Boston, but he was low on troops, he was low on guns, he was low on gunpowder, he was low on ammunition, he was low on everything. And, and this siege of Boston had been going on for a while. But he, he, he knew that this was important because of the port, and he had to get those British ships out of there. So they were trying to figure out a way to retake that city. And so Rufus Putnam steps forward and says, hey, I got an idea. Um, that, that group of mountains called Dorchester Heights, it overlooks both the harbor and the city, and if we could get cannons up there, we could, we could take out everything. We could, we could take the city again. And they say, okay, well, that's, that's great, but the minute we start building up there, the British are coming, and we're exposed, right? So without a fort, we can't defend ourselves against their attacks. And so Rufus is like, well, I got an idea about that. So Rufus had, had read this little book about French military warfare, and he, and he got this idea of building a fake fort, basically framing up what looked like a fort, erecting it real fast, you stick the cannons up there, and, you know, from a binocular, it's going to be like, there's a fort. So for four days, these guys prefabbed some fake walls out of timbers, using hay to prop it up, and then in one night, everybody marches up with all the fake walls. And while they're doing that, Washington is over in Cambridge and he's blasting them with cannons. So nobody's looking up at the hill. They're all looking at the cannons coming at them, right? Or the, the cannonballs. And they're returning fire. So all night long, there's this sound of cannons. Well, the next morning, the general for the British army, he wakes up and he looks up on Dorchester Heights and in one night, there's an entire fort built. And he's thinking to himself, I must be going crazy. Like, that wasn't there yesterday. Like, one of, pe one of the people around him heard him say, these rebels did more in one night than my army could have done in six months. Everything had changed. He held the city. He held the harbor. He had the military advantage. And in one night, everything got turned around. This led to the bloodless retaking of Boston. By God's grace, a snowstorm set in the next day. They were going to try to take the hill, but with the snowstorm, he said, you know what? It's not worth it. If you'll let us get out of Boston, we won't burn the city down. We'll get on our boats and we'll leave. And we were able to retake Boston. To this day, they call it Evacuation Day. It's a national holiday in Boston. We didn't know that when we were there, but we were there on Evacuation Day. It also lines up with St. Patrick's Day, and I think that might be more of the point. But it's a good excuse for a big party in Boston, right? But, but thinking about the resurrection and thinking about those women, they, they woke up, and that tomb was empty. And it changed everything. But now, like Washington and Putnam, the war still continued. Right? They retook the city, but the war still raged. The war was far from over. It was a big turning point in the war, but it was far from over. And in the same way, 
We're going to see these women who, who go to the tomb and they see everything is different. Something has changed and now everything is different. But at the same time, life still continues the same. And that's what I want to kind of focus on this morning. We're going to start in verse 55 of Matthew chapter 27. This is the, the last part of the story of Jesus' death and crucifixion. Jesus has uttered his last words on the cross, and he's breathed his last breath. Now pay attention to what the text says about who was there watching this, right? There are Roman soldiers there, right? They're, they're the ones crucifying him. They're the ones putting him to death. But notice what the text says about who else is there watching. Verse 55. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Verse 55 tells us that there were many women there looking on from a distance, who, who followed Jesus from Galilee. These women had been ministering to him, to Jesus. Out of this larger group of women, verse 56 identifies three women in particular. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the son, mother of Zebedee's sons, or the two sons of Zebedee, excuse me. Now, because of our focus in this chapter on the resurrection, most of us are tempted to read past this detail. And some of you may have read this account multiple times over and never really gave any thought to these verses. But these verses are important for several reasons. One, these, these women are disciples of Jesus. The three mentioned here are representatives of a much larger group. Second, it's an important detail because they are with Jesus as he takes his last breath. They could see him, and he could see them. John, in his gospel, records this event by saying that, uh, so the soldiers did these things, and then verse 25, but standing by the cross of Jesus were the mother and his mother's sister and Mary, wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. John, John has them right there. Third, if you've been reading Matthew, if, you, if you've ever read the gospel of Matthew, up until this point, you probably would not have realized that Jesus' disciples was a co-ed group. You would have just thought, Jesus is hanging out with 12 dudes. Maybe, maybe some extended dudes, but that's it. But this reminds us, this passage reminds us that Jesus' disciples were co-ed. These, these disciples had been ministering to him, caring for him, and they were faithful to him all the way up until his last breath. Some of these women were very rich and had been funding the ministry of Jesus, paying for things as they went along. And Matthew highlights them, and we're going to see in a minute why Matthew shines the light on them when he hasn't really been shining a light on them much up until this point, because they're going to be playing a very big role in the second part of this story. But here they are watching, and what are they watching? Well, they, they stay through the whole crucifixion. They watch Jesus die. Now, this was probably not the first crucifixion that these women had seen before. 
Jesus was not the first Jewish man to be crucified by the Romans. Likely there were thousands before him and thousands after him. Just last December, the cover of British archaeology was this. We'll put it up on the screen for you. Archaeologists discovered a previously unknown Roman town in England. And up there to the right, you see a picture of a bone with a nail going through it. We'll zoom in a little bit there for you so you can see it. The heel bone with a spike through it was a 25 to 35-year-old man that had been crucified in England in this Roman colony. And we know a lot about Roman, the Roman practice of crucifixion. A number of ancient historians tell us that Romans, Romans crucified 500 people a day as the city was being burned and dismantled by the Romans. We're talking thousands of people. Now, archaeological, archaeological evidence of the crucifixion is actually rare. And it's rare because of the way they treated the victims. You've got to remember, these were just, in, in their minds, these were the scourge, right? There's no proper burial for these people. There's no preserving and taking care of them. Most crucifixions also, because of the haste, use ropes rather than nails to suspend their victims to the cross. We only have four examples of crucifixion, four archaeological examples like the bone that I just showed you. That was one of them in England. There's one they found in Italy, one they found in Egypt, and one they found in Jerusalem. And these discoveries are significant because it reminds us that Jesus was unique, but the way he died was not unique. Many people died. And also, what this moment represents is these faithful disciples, these women, are watching Jesus die. They're watching Jesus take his last breath as, as he shares the same fate as, as criminals, as, as slaves. He's on the cross. This moment also represents how the powers that be in the world can define right and wrong however they want. Jesus was completely innocent. And yet, because the powers of be wanted it, they nailed him to a cross. Right? This, is, this is the world that we think we live in. That, that those who are in power, those who are in control, can do whatever they want. They can define good and evil however they want. And people like Jesus get crushed by the world's machine. And Jesus here, he, he's participating on the cross. He, he, he did this of his own accord, right? He's not being forced to do it. Instead, he is participating with this broken worldly system of power. And he's joining in solidarity with the suffering and oppression of the people that have come before him and that will come after him. What do you think was going through their minds, these women, as they watched Jesus die? Verse 57, it says, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. 
man, the resurrection story is full of surprises, right? We start by learning that, hey, disciples were co-ed. Something, people that hadn't been focused on at all in Matthew, all of a sudden are just center stage. But now, here comes this rich disciple. Where did he come from? Well, he lived in Jerusalem. He didn't travel around with Jesus, but he lived in Jerusalem. We know two things about him from the text. We know where he's from, right? Arimathea. And we know something else. What else do we know about Joseph of Arimathea? He's rich. That's interesting, right? Reading through the Gospels, one might be left with the impression that there is no chance for rich people. Right? Jesus even said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a wealthy person to follow Jesus. You might remember the story of the... We know that he's rich. We know that the way Jesus preached, it, it might leave you with the impression that it's hard for a rich person to follow Jesus. And yet here, at the end of Jesus' life, at this pivotal moment, this rich disciple steps forward. And I find that really interesting. A, a lot of the things that I, I, you think you know reading through the Gospel of Matthew just all of a sudden get turned upside down in these last few chapters. He was incredibly wealthy, yet he was a disciple of Jesus. Now, what do we see the one wealthy disciple of Jesus talked about in Scripture do? He uses his wealth to honor Jesus with a proper burial. Remember, with a crucifixion, there is no burial. There is no, you're, you're left to let the, the crows eat the skin away from your body until the bones fall on the ground and then they start over and do it again. But, but this wealthy disciple who just all of a sudden shows up, says, you know what, I'm going to use my wealth to do, to honor my Lord and my Savior and give him a proper burial. Notice then in verse 58, he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Joseph goes and asks Pilate, the leader, for Jesus' body which I can imagine would come at some risk, right? I mean, he's a wealthy, influential man. This, this might take his reputation down a few notches. It's not just that he's, hey, look, hey let me pay for this. Like, let me, let me slip you disciples a check. You, you take care of that, right? No, he, he's going himself to Pilate, using not only his money, but his influence, obviously, for the sake of his Savior. He's a wealthy, influential man in the city of Jerusalem, and he's asking for the body of a convicted criminal. In doing so, what is he doing? He's, he's now associating himself with Jesus. There's huge risk there for sure, but he doesn't care. And Pilate agrees that it's to be given, his body of Jesus is to be given to him. So Joseph took the body, he wrapped it, in a clean linen cloth. And he placed it in his own new tomb that he had had cut out of a rock. Now, we, we think about, you know, funerals and, and digging a hole in the ground and putting a person there. And in this area, you, you would go to the side of a mountain and you would buy the mountain and then you would 
have someone come in and hewn out the rock. And, and these tombs, you would go into them and there would be multiple chambers because you're, again, as a wealthy person, you're buying this for your whole family, right? So you, you might have eight different places in there to place a body. And you place that body there wrapped in linen. Over time, six months to a year, everything just decays and you get down to the bones and you collect the bones then back out of those little divots in the wall and, and you put them in a bone box so that the next family member could be buried there. And so Joseph has one of those tombs for his family. And he says, you know what? Instead of my family, I'm going to put Jesus there. I'm going to lay his body in this brand new tomb. And these tombs would have large stones that would be rolled almost like, um, what do they call those doors? The, the little sliding doors, like pocket doors. That, that's what they look like. The, 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 the stone would be held by two pieces of rock and it would just roll in front and seal the entrance so that grave robbers couldn't get in and get any valuables that the family may have left. And so that's what he does. He, 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 he's a rich man. He probably doesn't do it himself. He's probably got a crew of people and they're doing this, right? They're, they're getting the body ready, they're rolling the stone over, and they're sealing it up. And you see in our text that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary are still there. They're sitting opposite of the two. They, they will not leave Jesus. The dudes are gone. But these women, they're there, looking over everything. Do you see it? Like the, These women refuse to stay away and are present at every step in the process. So they go, and they just sit there, opposite of the tomb. They're just, they're just sitting there. Now, since we know that Joseph was rich, again, it means he was buried in a family tomb. And he's honoring Jesus by putting Jesus' body, the first body to be buried in this family tomb. And, and that's the scene. While, while Joseph is doing all these things, the women are there watching, following the body every step of the way. Joseph gives him an honorable burial. And the Marys, they come and they stick it out to the end. They don't abandon Jesus for a moment, even his lifeless body. And they see the stone placed, all these guys roll the stone, and then it's, then it's over. Again, how, how do you think they're feeling about their life in that moment? How would you be feeling about your life in that moment if you were one of these women? You, you'd given up everything. It, it says these women have been following him since Galilee. They're, they're part of the gang. They've been going from place to place to place. And now they just watch the stone be rolled in front of the grave. Of Jesus' lifeless body. In verse 62, it says, The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, While he was alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest these disciples go in and steal him away. And tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud would be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers, go make it secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. The seal on the stone was probably like a, a big wax thing 
kind of like a wax seal in an envelope so you know that that envelope has been opened because the wax is broken. So that's, that's probably what they used to seal that stone in place so that if Jesus wasn't there, they would be able to say, oh, yeah, look, clearly from the outside, someone rolled the stone away. It's, it's been broken open. And they put a guard there. And, and, and so let's just pause here. You're one of these Marys, right? You've been following Jesus You've left everything. You're on the road with him. We know Mary Magdalene is mentioned in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus had healed her. She had been oppressed by evil spirits, and Jesus drove them from her life. There are some other people who had seen him heal others. Some of them had been healed by him, like Mary of Magdalene. They've been transformed by the teachings. They've been transformed by his grace and his mercy. They've been transformed by Jesus' beautiful, compelling vision of the world and a claim about himself, that he was God's son, and that he was bringing God's kingdom and God's reign and rule to this earth. And he would invite people into his family of disciples, people who would never have been included before. It was unheard of for a rabbi to be rocking around with a co-ed group of disciples, Right? And he would celebrate the kingdom of God with them. He'd celebrate the healing power and the love of the Father with them. He taught these people that God cared about the sparrows. How much more was he caring for you? He taught his disciples that the world is a safe place for us because of the Father's love. And he taught us to love our enemies, right? That is Jesus. He is amazing and beautiful. And then what happens? They kill him. This beautiful, amazing vision of Jesus. And then he gets crushed by the Roman machine. Jesus suffers the fate of a thousand Jews before him and a thousand Jews after him by getting crushed by the Roman Empire. What must have been going through their minds? Everything was so good for Jesus. Everything was moving along great. I'm sure they had their hopes up that, that maybe the world is the kind of place that Jesus talked about. And then it all just comes crashing down as they're staring at a tomb. He could save others, but he couldn't apparently save himself. And this story has so many layers to it that he, that he dies, that they watch him die. They watch him get buried. Surely they had buried family members of their own before. Then those powers do their best to make sure that the Jesus movement is erased once and for all, right? They, they don't want to leave anything to chance. It's, not, it's bad enough that they had him killed and crucified, but now they just want to make sure we wipe this Jesus guy off the face of the earth. And you're just sitting there. These women are just sitting there watching this all happen. And I'm sure they're thinking, well, th this is how the world is. Those in power get what they want. It doesn't matter how compelling, it doesn't matter how great the vision of life that Jesus was, was preaching and talking about. That's what, that's what these people want and that's what these people get. 
a nice dream. It's a nice dream that it could be different. That the way in which Jesus talked about the world could really be the way the world could be. And Jesus helped them foster that dream for a while. And it was great. But now, sitting there watching, looking at an empty or at a, at a tomb being sealed, they're brought back to reality, right? This is just the way the world is. We live in a world where might makes right, where people in power can define good and evil the way they want to for themselves and for their enemies. It's a world where, where animals don't even treat people as poorly as humans do, right? I mean, animals eat each other. I mean, I get that. But, but they're not sitting around devising the most horrific ways to inflict pain upon a human before killing them, right? Like, they're not doing that with their victims. But that's what we do, right? That's what we do as people. That's the world that we live in. Some of us who, some of us have gone through excruciating pain and loss in our lives at the hands of others. Some of us have just gone through excruciating loss. And we experience that pain and that loss and we're reminded that, that this is what the majority of human history has been like. I doubt there's a single person here this morning that doesn't have a friend or a loved one that was murdered or in an accident or got a disease and died suddenly. Why? Because that is how the world really is, right? This morning, though, I, I hope you see that the Christian message faces the worst evil that our world knows. It acknowledges it. It doesn't pretend that it's not there. It doesn't pretend that the world is something that it's not. It doesn't pretend that, that none of this is real and that we're all living in a simulation. No, and, and, and not only does it not pretend like those things aren't real, it does something even more amazing. It participates in it. You see, Jesus understood exactly the way this world was, and he participated in it. Jesus was crucified like a common criminal, but as an innocent man. So what are these women at the tomb to think? Life goes on. No point in staying here anymore. It's over. Guess we'll join a grief share group with the other disciples and we'll learn how to move forward. Right? Isn't that what happens to us when tragedy hits us? We, we just have to figure out a way to keep going. We have a vision of how the world is because of our life experience. Our life experience has taught us that this is how the world is. Then you get hurt, and it's difficult to move forward. There's a lot of pain, a lot of loss, and you just have to find a way to cope. And for many of us in this world, that's what it means to be human. And yet the invitation to believers is to do something that seems crazy. The disciple of Jesus chooses to believe that the way that they have experienced the world is not really the way of the world. Everything in the world tries to convince us that the world is one way, 
That this world is ruled by tragedy and, and sickness and death. But then there's what we read in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, verse 1, it says, Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Let me just stop right there. Don't you love that the angel's not like, Hey, just take it on blind faith. Hey, just trust me. He's not here. What does he say? No, he, we're, he, he invites us in. Come inside. Look. <laughs> He's not here. Use all of your senses to understand this incredible event that just happened. Don't just take my word for it. Look. See. Verse 6, he's not there, for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you so. Or see, I have told you. Verse 8, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. Fear and great joy. Remember the whole time I'm asking you, how are they feeling? Matthew tells us now. After the resurrection, they are feeling fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them saying, what's up? <laughs> right? We have this word greetings, but it really just means hi, hello, how you doing? Right? It's just, just this general like, how you been? This is crazy, right? And they come up and they took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now, you're seeing Matthew and Mark and Luke draw our attention to these women in the previous chapter so that we're ready for this chapter. Here, they're center stage. And what are they doing? They're back watching the tomb. They're coming back to the tomb, looking for Jesus the next morning, right? They're just they're doing their thing. They just don't give up, do they? No male disciples, just female disciples. How do we know this happened? Because the women told the men and the men wrote it down. That's the only way we know what's happening here. Incredible. It's incredible. And these women are greeted by an angel. Then the woman hurried away from the tomb. But what I want to draw your attention to this is what they are feeling. Notice how Matthew tries to capture it with two words. But it's a single emotion that he describes. What, what, what are the two words? Fear and joy. Right? Those seem like they would be opposite things. But in this moment, they come together as one emotion. And it's so powerful. It's so just category-breaking that the only way it can be described is with these two words. It's not like they were afraid and then they got happy once they started running. They are terrified and full of joy. 
And then Jesus met him, just like it was any other day. And he said, what's up? How you doing? How you been? Can you imagine? I'm sure they were like, what just happened? And, and, then, and then running, terrified with joy, what, whatever that's supposed to mean, they're, they, they, they're running and Jesus just appears. And they fall down and they worship him. Worship is really the only thing that makes sense to do in that moment. And then Jesus said, don't, don't be afraid. Go and tell the rest. Go tell the rest of the disciples in Galilee. I'll meet you there. That's where they're going to see me. And that's the story. This is, this is the, woman's, the women's experience. Are these women who are faithful to Jesus the only ones there? Yeah. So where does this story come from? It comes from them. And, and notice how simple this story is told. Most of the stories about Jesus are much longer in the Gospel of Matthew. They're, this is just a version of what happened. Now the problem for us is when it comes to the resurrection is, is we, just, we don't have a category for this. We, we have stories about people being revived after death, right? We understand that. Lazarus, right? There, there are other examples of people being brought back, even in the Old Testament, being brought back to life. But what happens to all those people? They die, right? They're, they're, they're revived and they're brought back, but then they die again. So we have a category for that. We understand that. Then we have people who say their loved ones or you know, show up as ghosts or spirits. But those stories don't claim that they're alive, right? So we have a, we have a category for that. But, but what is being recorded in Matthew 28 is neither one of those things, right? The resurrection story is completely unique in history. The resurrection is its own category. And the resurrection flows out of the story of the Bible. In the Bible, we meet the creator God who is on a mission to confront evil and death and cleanse the world of all injustice. The prophets in the Old Testament look forward to this day, the day his kingdom would begin, the prophet's hope wasn't that everyone would be raptured away. Instead, the hope is that God would recreate this world and his people. This is what Daniel and Isaiah meant when they used the words raising up or resurrection. This was not just a spiritual state. This wasn't just about our, our souls and our spirits. This was Peoples with resurrected hearts living in a redeemed world that had been purified. This is a, a new world, the way God intended it to be. And this is the, the vision of the future you find in the Old Testament. And Matthew 28 is the fulfillment of that Old Testament vision, that, that hope for the future. But what we see in this story is that God brought this new future about in a very, very surprising way that these women didn't have a framework for. And if we're honest, we don't either. So the prophet said the Savior is coming and all things will be made new when he arrives and establishes his new kingdom. And with the resurrection, we get a foretaste of that new creation. New creation begins by bursting out of a tomb. None of the disciples were expecting that. No one was. And Jesus told them over and over and over again, this is how it's going to happen. And they're all thinking, yeah, 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 but you're going to be crowned king and rule over the world, right? 
And Jesus kept saying, no, guys, this, you're not getting it. How could you get it? Who has a framework for the resurrection? None of us. None of us do. What these women just experienced is what we all experience in this life, right? They are experiencing death, pain, and loss. They also have hope that one day that God will fix it when the resurrection happens. I think this is part of the reason why we don't have a better description of what's going on because at this point, the disciples really don't know. They don't have a category for this to know how to even explain it. They're just trying to communicate exactly what happened. Because now, based on what happened, they have to rethink their whole life. They have to rethink what kind of world is it that I'm living in, right? Because of the resurrection, the people in power on earth don't get the last word, do they? All the the selfishness and sin and injustice could not keep Jesus in the grave. Why would you believe such a thing? Because there's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. And these eyewitnesses saw a mutilated dead man put into a tomb, and he's not there anymore. And then they meet him, and he says, what's up? How you doing? And just wanted to hang out with them. Did one of my favorite things. He ate with them, right? Over the next month, hundreds of disciples of Jesus have the same experience as these women. So we can't just write off their account of, uh, as delusions of some grief-stricken women. Over 500 people have the same experience. They all experience this new category of interpreting life. This is the birth of Christianity. And this is why the Jesus movement hasn't and never will die out. You see, what's driving this movement is something unique, that Jesus rose from the dead. That the world is not what you think it is. You can see that in the way that Matthew describes the women's response. What does it feel like to have your whole world blown apart? Like every category in your mind just blown all at once. Well, Matthew tells us it feels like fear and great joy. They're not feeling these emotions separately, but at the same time. Have you ever experienced terror and joy, fear and joy? I thought some examples of this combined emotion might help. So, you know, I did what every good pastor does, and I asked my family for some examples. Emma said she experiences this when people sing happy birthday to her. Right? There's terror, like everyone is looking at me, but then there's joy because they're celebrating me, but I don't know what to do in that moment. Right? So there's like fear and joy. Gracie said, oh yeah, Dad, I, I, I got it. So, okay, what's that? Walking down the stairs of the Eiffel Tower. She's like, it was beautiful and brought me so much joy to see the city of Paris, but it was terrifying that I was going to fall off. Amber this is weird. <laughs> she said she had this experience when she married me. <laughs> I only experienced joy, but that's probably because I was marrying up. So, For me, for me, it was cutting the umbilical cord of both of my daughters. 
the very thing that had been supporting their lives was being cut by me, meaning now I was responsible for caring for their lives. There was terror in that moment, but seeing that new life, there was so much joy. Now, again, these are, like I said in the beginning, poor analogies compared to what is happening to these disciples. But, but hopefully it helps you to connect to their experience. None of us were there, but hundreds of disciples had this experience. Their accounts of these events have been passed on to us in what we call the New Testament. So do you see what's happening in the resurrection? Like, we, we think we know what kind of world we're living in, right? It's a world where those in power can crucify Jesus of Nazareth. We live in a world that is corrupt and unjust. We live in a world where people die tragically. We live in a world where a simple virus can kill so many people seemingly randomly. We live in a world where death and loss is normal. We live in a world where we can be super thin, run marathons, only to get diagnosed with cancer and die. But the resurrection invites us to see that this is not the full story. The resurrection reminds us that it's definitely not the end of the story. Now, some of you have come in this morning and you're tired. You're, you're tired of the way life is. You're, you're, you've been, you're weary under it. That the powers that be in this world have just, they feel like they've been crushing you. Some of you have been abused and mistreated. Some of you are dealing with a difficult marriage. Some of you are in a season of a difficult marriage. And this has caused you to hear the teachings of Jesus and think, man, they're just too good to be true. Maybe you even hope that the world could really be like Jesus says, like these women did before he was crucified. Some of you are here this morning and you're dealing with moral failures that, and sin that, that you just keep committing and you can't seem to stop. Unfortunately, some of you have even begun to go so far as to identify with your sin. You, you've begun to say, this is just who I am. Because this is the kind of world that I live in. And so this whole victory over death and life transformation thing sounds like a pipe dream because you're just too far gone. But the resurrection asks you to entertain this simple claim. This is not the way the world really is. And this is not who you really are. Instead, you're made in God's image. And despite the web of sin entrapping us in selfishness, evil, and injustice, and despite the fact that we have all participated in the death of Jesus in one way or another because of our sin, the resurrection tells us that our failures and evil doesn't get the last word. This world doesn't get the last word. Jesus does. Jesus chose to die in our place to cure the human condition of sin. And Jesus has chosen to have victory through his life.
and his love. The resurrection gives us hope for the new creation, which means there's hope for a new you. And this hope is real because the resurrection is real. You can point to the empty tomb that exists in history. It's the testimony of hundreds of people that not only saw Jesus, but dined with Jesus. And I know the temptation this morning is to believe, based on your own experiences, that this is just how the world is. It's ruled by death, and it's ruled by darkness and sin. But the resurrection of Jesus claims that what you believe is not true. The resurrection gives us a different kind of hope. Maybe some of you have given up on someone in your life because you think they are never going to change. The resurrection of Jesus says, no, that's not how it has to be. Maybe some of you have a deeply rooted sin and you think it'll never go away. The resurrection of Jesus says, no, that's not how it has to be. There might be some of you who look out at the world and it just seems so hopeless. The resurrection of Jesus says, no, that's not how it has to be. Are you open to change and the resurrection power to open up a new future this morning? It can be different and one day it will be different because Jesus rose from the dead. Amen? Amen. We're going to close our service this morning by taking the bread and the cup and remembering the sacrifice made on our behalf after I close in prayer. Father, thank you Thank you for breaking our categories and, and, and giving us a new way to understand the world, Lord. And Father, this morning I pray and I hope that everyone here this morning has put their faith and trust in you. That they've stopped believing that this is the way the world has to be, Lord. And because of the resurrection, they see how it can be. And God, if there's anyone here that has not placed their faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, I pray this morning they would do that. That today would mark the beginning of a new life as you give them a new heart and resurrect them. Father, I pray you bless this time as we remember what it costs you, Lord, by celebrating the Lord's Supper. And we, we take this bread that's representative of your body that has been broken for us and we take that piece and we dip it into the wine that represents your blood that was shed for us, God, that we will come and celebrate the resurrection this morning in all of your glory and goodness. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.